I care more about like the mental, the emotional wellness of the dog. listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 87 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. I'm curious how many of you are familiar with the 333 rule. I see this go around on social media probably every couple of weeks, and I get excited every time I see it. So the 333 rule refers to the fact that when you adopt a new dog into your home, you should give them three days to decompress, three weeks to start to learn your routine, and three months before they really feel at home. And our guest today, Anne King, she created the Rescue Smart website, and I think she's pretty much responsible for popularizing and spreading the 333 rule around the internet. So I was so excited to get to talk to her. As many of you know, my husband and I recently adopted a dog named Nessie. Uh, we brought her home the day after Thanksgiving, and we already have our older guy, Nino, who's about 10 years old, and we just brought Nessie home. And I'll be honest, dog mom confession time, adopting a new dog into your home is a stressful time. And I've been a dog mom, it'll be 20 years in July of this year. And I know that it can be a stressful time. And I know that everybody needs an adjustment period. And I know that I can't expect a new dog to behave like my old dog. I know I need to have appropriate expectations. And it's still been hard. <laughs> I will say we're almost to the two-month mark and we're getting into a really good groove. I think what has been particularly unexpected in our situation is that Nino and Nessie are not having a love connection. They don't fight or anything like that. It's just that she's younger and she wants to jump on him and play with him. And he is apparently more of a grouchy old man than we realized. And he's not really looking for that. So for right now, we're on a strict gate, crate, and rotate schedule around the house. But I don't at all want to sound like this has been bad or negative because Nessie is fabulous. She's going to be an amazing dog. She definitely has an intensity about her that some of our other dogs haven't had. So I've already committed myself to jumping into doing some online training with her and looking at some upcoming training classes in the spring and maybe even looking into doing some dog sports or things like that with her, which I have never done before. So I'll be sharing my journey with you out of my comfort zone for sure. And one of my friends is a dog trainer. You've probably heard me mention her before. You can hear Diana's story all the way back on episode 13 of the Believe in Dog podcast. And I was talking to Diana about bringing Nessie into my home, and she mentioned the Rescue Smart website. And then I had another dog trainer friend mention this website too. 
And I was like, oh my God, you can never get any dog trainers to agree on anything. So I definitely have to check this website out. So of course, there's going to be links in the show notes to rescuesmart.net. Please make sure you check this website out. I even tell Anne during our interview, I can't believe that she's giving all of this information away for free. We're coming up on February, which is Pet Dental Health Month. I recently learned that 80% of our dogs over three years old have active dental or periodontal disease. And dental disease is actually a sign of other inflammation in the body and can be connected to everything from cardiovascular problems, kidney problems, diabetes, certain types of cancers, joint disease. Your dog's dental health actually can affect everything in their body. And you know that I am obsessed with finding the best and healthiest products for our dogs. So I was so excited to find out about teeth. That's right, teeth. Just a tiny spoonful of teeth powder in your dog's water bowl will make a huge improvement in your dog's dental health. It's the only thing that ever made my vet stop and go, hey, what did you do with Penny's teeth? They actually look so much better. So forget trying to figure out how to get your dog's teeth brushed without them biting you. Forget those sticks or green chews. What you need is teeth powder, just a tiny amount in your dog's water bowl. And listeners of this podcast can save 20% on your teeth order with the code ADM. And you'll be on your way to a healthier smile for your dog without any anesthesia needed. Check out the link in the show notes to find out more about teeth and save 20% on your orders. I did want to mention before we get started that Anne and I had a couple of technical difficulties during our recording. I think that with my editing and with everything that I've done, you won't be too distracted by that during the conversation. You might not even notice, which is my hope. But if you are listening and you're like, oh, something sounds weird here or this changed. um, Yes, that's you're not imagining things. So Anne is going to tell us about her early life growing up with dogs. And one of the things that, oh my gosh, I just love about Anne is how vulnerable she is and honest she is with admitting different mistakes that she's made along the way, whether it was getting a dog at a time in her life when maybe it wasn't a great choice or mistakes she's made with fostering dogs in her home. She is just so honest about everything that she has been through that led her to becoming a dog trainer and leaving a very successful Silicon Valley tech career. Anne is going to share with us what she's learned about the 333 rule and about her rescue SMART framework. SMART is an acronym for structure, management, activity, red flags, and training. So we're going to go through what each one of these steps mean for your journey in adopting your new dog into your home and getting them set up for success. And she's going to talk about the most common mistakes that people make and how they can easily fix them. Anne is such an incredible wealth of information. I think you're going to love this. I hope you'll share this one with all your friends in the rescue and shelter community because the Rescue Smart website is such an amazing resource for them. I can't wait for you to meet Anne King. So we are here today with Anne King, and I am so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. 
Uh, I have so much I want to talk to you about, but I always love starting off by asking about your childhood experiences with pets. I've shared before on the podcast that I did not grow up with any kind of animals. I didn't even know that I liked dogs until I was 25, and I was completely clueless. (laughs) And so I'm always curious what that looks like for other people. So what was your experience? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I um, we had a family dog growing up, but my mom had grown up. She was from rural Mississippi. She had grown up on a farm um, and she went to college and studied computer science and went. So she went to work full time when we were pretty young and she knew what it took to responsibly have animals. And so we were not really a house full of animals, you know, as a kid. Um, we did have the one dog and that was like, you know, and she was fantastic, but it, it's so interesting when you look back at how we dealt, cause I'm 57. And so I'm thinking about like when I was like 10 um, <laughs> and how we dealt with and where we lived um, in, we were in New Jersey at the time, no one had fences. And people just kind of had dogs and they would be a lot of times out cruising around. Like you knew as a kid, which house to stay away from. Cause that Jack Russell was going to chase you on your bike. You know, you knew <laughs> that sort of thing. And, and it was just like a different time, you know? And so we, we did have the one dog and then, um, I adopt, I made the big mistake that I always get to use as an example, you know, graduated from college and thought, you know what I need right now in my life as I'm heading off into the, you know, marketing and technology industry in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, I, I think I'll get a puppy. Well, okay. <laughs> and, and then the reality of, oh, now I need to move to San Francisco for a job. And this is not you know, I cannot responsibly have a puppy. So I had to rehome my, you know, at that time, two-year-old golden retriever, which was super traumatic for me. But again, it was a learning experience. But my dad and I, really the passion came, my father and I used to sit with our big dog book of dog breeds. We'd watch like all the dog shows on TV because he was the dog lover. And, but he always said, you know, your mom gets to decide if we actually have one because he knew who was going to be taking care of that animal. Um, (laughs) But, and we'd, you know, learn about all the dog breeds and watch the shows. And so I always had it. I love dogs. I always had it as a passion. And then when I was, um, you know, out on my own, um, after I had rehomed my uh, golden retriever, I started volunteering at the San Francisco SPCA. And so oh, wow. that's, yeah, that was the first time. And I, I mean, I was like in my early twenties, that was the first time that I was in sort of a very, you know, crowded city shelter, like San Francisco SPCA at the time was not what it is today, or it wasn't yet, you know, it was just a municipal kind of a, no, I wouldn't say like a dog pound, but I mean, it wasn't what it became to be sort of a flagship operation yeah. at the time. And and it was just people, you know, I got to really observe sort of how it works from a kind of a soup to nuts, you know, cradle to grave, dogs are being surrendered and, you know, put up for adoption or they weren't able to be adopted out because there were behavioral problems. And then kind of, you know, seeing the experiences from both people, the people who work at the shelter, the volunteers, the staff, but also what people went through in in adopting a dog, you know, all that was had to be considered in that, that really, um, I really enjoyed, I did a lot of adoption counseling back then. And I look back now, and it's kind of cringy. Well, there's so many things in anyone in dogs that's been in dogs for a long time, 
we all have our cringy moments, but um, <laughs> I, I, I look back now at what it, adoption counseling was, for example, and just, it, it was, you know, so different then than it is now, you know, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that's where I got my start. And then I really didn't have a dog. I did end up adopting a dog when my job changed from the uh, San Francisco SPCA. And he became like my family's heart dog. My dad ended up with him just because my dad had retired and really needed a buddy. But he was a reject from their hearing dog program, which they had started back in the 90s. And so that was my first. I I consider that, you know, I had my mistake dog, um, but then I consider Dexter good. You know, I I went into what I was getting into and and all of that. And so he was the first dog I ever really uh, ever adopted. So... I was just thinking my husband has a story that I want to share. We have never shared it on the podcast about him getting a dog that, you know, he wasn't really ready for at that time because he was, you know, like 20 years old and in like this apartment that was like an attic of somebody's house. And, you know, so I'm I'm really grateful to you, you know, sharing that in this rehoming thing. And then you are so like embarrassed about it because my husband has a story like that that's even really hard for him to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We. I, I mean, and I think all the mistakes that I've made, and I made plenty, kind of brought me to where I am now in terms of you know what I like to do. And so, when you know, I didn't like I said, I didn't grow up with a bunch of of dogs or a bunch of animals. Um, always loved the idea of dogs, but um, you know, seeing kind of early on as a volunteer, sort of what that really all required. That that really kind of put me in my place, if you will, in terms of you know being responsible. So we've all got our, we've all got our mistakes. Absolutely. (laughs) Are there any stories from that time that have like always stuck with you of like either somebody who relinquished a dog or something like that? Because I have ones that I've heard over the years and I'm just always curious about that. Uh, That's a good question. Uh, One, yes, I could. And it was, it was traumatic for me. Um, And this was not at the San Francisco SPCA. This is when I was helping out a, a, sort of a fly-by-night rescue um, before dog rescues were really kind of a thing. Uh, Someone's situation had changed. They had adopted a dog from this rescue. Then they had their, and it was a really big dog, um, really really sweet dog, but really big, high arousal, uh, you know, words that we didn't even have at the time to use about dog behavior, Um, you know, high arousal, um, reactive. And then this woman's mother senior mother, she was like 80, had to move in with her. And this dog, I mean, it was a danger to this woman to have this dog around because he was just so large. And they would have needed extensive training. And they would have had to do extensive follow through with that training to really have this dog kind of fit in their, um, in their world. And when so when this woman came to relinquish the dog back to the rescue, I I didn't do the intake. Somebody else did the intake and I was kind of new to that organization. And the person doing the intake shamed this poor woman. I mean, this woman was crying, having to turn in her, you know, her dog and she had reasons and she just wasn't treated well. And that really struck me because we've all been in situations where yeah, life happens and I have a, you know, we all want to say we adopt a dog. That's your your responsibility for life. You know, we we would all love to to live that, but sometimes it just isn't possible. And um, I don't 
I don't like that. That's one of my pet peeves about rescue is we have a, tons of compassion for the animals, but we kind of sometimes fall short in our compassion for the humans. And so that really struck me. And that was very traumatic for me. Well, I don't like to overuse that word trauma, but it, it, it stuck with me because I have vivid memories of it, which means that there was a lot of emotion to it. But I thought, well, that's, that's not right. I mean, that, that's just not right. Like we don't, we're not in the business of, we shouldn't be in the business of shaming. Um, and so that, that really, really stuck with me. And I didn't, I stopped working. I stopped working with that organization. And at the time I was just doing real basic stuff, but I stopped working with them because I just didn't like that. And I thought, you know, there's gotta be better organizations out there that don't do that. And so, you know, I, Again, San Francisco SVCA. I mean, there were some other ones, but um, even the even the, the Alameda County, which is Oakland, even the Alameda County Animal Shelter, right? I did some work, you know, work for them, and I really, I really enjoyed that. Very compassionate people, but we're also very understanding, and that's a hard world, you know. The the yeah. compassion fatigue that comes with shelter and rescue and any, you know, it's it's a very difficult place to be for humans a lot of the time. Um, so I yeah. get it. I Especially get it. Especially for long periods of time. Yes. And I get it. People do suck sometimes, you know, like their behavior, <laughs> you know, we see a lot, you know, we see abuse, we see neglect, we see people who, who are irresponsible. And, and, you know, a lot of times that's why dogs end up in shelters, but, but not always, you know what I mean? And so I really, I don't like to just have a blanket approach to, to any of it. And so I'm imagining at this time you're like working in Silicon Valley and you're in this very professional job. And how did you end up leaving this and becoming a full-time dog person? Um, well, I had to, so I left, I had, we had two babies at the time and I realized I could not be a partner in a consulting firm in tech in the, you know, nineties and be able to be a mom at the same time. It just, I wasn't, and my husband was in investment banking at the time. So he had a job that, you know, was super uh, intense and required a lot of his time. And so we just, I made a decision that even though I was self-employed at the time, you know, that was when tech money was flying around and people, and it was just <laughs> dot com. I mean, you know, you had to take every phone call and I, and we didn't have the technology that we have now, which I could, you know, smartphones. I mean, I don't even think I had a laptop. And so I realized, you know, I just can't do this. So we, um, I, I left my firm and then was a full-time mom, stay-at-home mom. And then once the kids were, you know, elementary school, later elementary school, I thought, you know, I, cause I, I'm a, I'm a writer. I was in marketing. Um, I like creating things, you know, building things and launching things. And at the time I thought, you know, I love dogs. Why I'm going to just take my, my passion for dogs and I'm going to go find a school that I can go learn how to be a dog trainer. Because at the time I thought, well, of course you have to go to a school. Of course you have to have the certifications. I mean, how can you not, you know, my hairdresser has a certification, the, you know, you have to go. And then I found out like, oh girl, no, you don't. Like anybody, <laughs> a completely unregulated industry, which you know, and at the time we didn't have YouTube to, to learn from. So I, I, I thought, no, I don't, I need more confidence in, I, I need to know that I know what I'm talking about before right. I, I was a consultant in my professional life in tech. So I knew that as a consultant, like you have to know your stuff. 
So I ended up finding Animal Behavior College in 2005, and it wasn't online. Nothing was online or anything. It was these giant binders, and it was, you know, um, I really I liked the program at the time. There were only a couple of different programs, and one of the programs you had to go and stay there for like three months, which was not going to work with two, you know, with kids and family and stuff. So, um, so I just decided, yep, I'm going to go to school, and then I'm going to launch myself as a dog trainer. And then I just started doing it. I just started with puppy classes and, you know, and then the more it's funny you, you get into when you're a new trainer, there's a lot of Dunning-Kruger principle that happens in, uh, in with, with, well, not just training, but you're a new trainer, you've done it for a couple of years, you think, okay, I got this, you know. I know. And then you the longer you do it, the more you realize like what you don't know. So the longer mm-hmm. I was in it, the more I realized like, oh my gosh, there's so much to learn. Um, and so then I ended up going after about six or seven years of just kind of basic stuff, classes and helping with obedience cues and things like that. I started to get into behavior, which is, you know, very, it's a lot different than, you know, just regular kind of obedience training and, and things like that. And, and then, boy, you talk about uh, imposter syndrome when you, you know, you get into the sciences without a science background. You know, and, and it's like, oh gosh, okay. You know, and so then it became, and I love, st- I love learning new things. I'm a great student, so I loved, you know, doing all of that. And then, and then that's how I kind of ended up on the behavior consulting track. So, how do you differentiate between like what fall like? How do you define like training versus behavior? Well, any any, um, that's a really good question. It's. From the standpoint, if people need basic help with basic things, like, you know, I, I need the dog to, to wait at the door before going out, you know, basic obedience cues that help the dog, help us manage the dog safely in a human environment, you know, walking nicely on a leash without pulling, um, you know, understanding stay or wait or, you know, things like that. Um, that That's training to me, just, you know basic training. There's nothing, if there's fear or anxiety or aggression, then that's more behavior. I think, I think that's kind of how the industry defines it too. You know, once you get any sort of problem, now a dog owner is going to say it's a problem that my dog bolts out the door. And I totally get that, you know, it really only matters what the pet owner thinks is a problem, but but behavior problems, behavior consultants tend to work on, you know, real problem problems that are that are typically rooted in fear, I would say most most of the time. Okay. So you allude to something on your website about like mistakes that you made over the years, and that that led you to seeking out, you know, more information. Like, do you have any mistakes that you're you're willing to share with us about things that happen, you know, in your home that you're like, oh, oh God, girl. absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I had let's see, we had a, a couple of Rottweilers. My children were really young, and we got uh, we I had two Rottweilers. We didn't get them at the same time. I knew well enough not to do that, but got them at two different times. And I ended up sending them because again, with toddlers in the house, you can't also be a dog trainer. And at the time, I wasn't doing dog training, and so I sent them away to a, a board and train program with some people that came highly recommended. Oh, you know, what do I know? Right. 
Well, those dogs came home on these big, um, you know, electronic collars. And so I had to learn all this technology and they were, they were really well trained. But what I observed was they also had some like kind of fear type stuff. Like they, it didn't seem like they had had fun away at camp. So, um, you know, and, and so that, that I look at that as a mistake, but, but even at the time though, I didn't, I didn't think of that as, um, as a, as a mistake. I just kind of thought, huh, I guess maybe that's what you have to do if you own Rottweilers. I mean, you know, and then the big mistakes happened though, when I started fostering. And the, the kids were young and I was, I was st- still not into dogs as a profession, but my uh, a close friend of mine owned a veterinary clinic and it was an emergency clinic. And so lots of people ended up having to relinquish their dogs because maybe they couldn't afford to pay. And, you know, this woman too, and she gave away like so much stuff, right? I mean, it sounds so horrible, like, oh my gosh, you know, people can't afford it. And so you make them give up their dogs. I mean, you know, these could be thousands of dollars in vet bills, right? That people just simply were never going to be able to afford. And so this doctor, I mean, she couldn't afford to just do everything for free. So sometimes she would take in dogs. And so at one point in my house, I think I had like, I don't know, eight, eight fosters in addition to my regular dogs. Yeah. And we had this really big house. And so, you know, it, 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 it seemed like it was working okay, but I let, I allowed way too much, um, freedom to this group of randomly assorted dogs. And, um, uh, one dog almost killed another dog and it was over a resource that, you know, I knew enough not to like leave bones and food out and things like that. But it was, um, you know, a dog that had found something in the backyard. And all of a sudden, this other dog came from out of nowhere and just attacked. I mean, it was so awful, really severely injured the other dog, totally my fault. And so at that point, I was like, okay, I need to put a lot more structure around this, or I need to do some more, you know, learning. Um, and I called a, a well, at that time, I, I knew a lot of vets because of my friend's practice. And I was helping her manage her business. So I was asking veterinarians about behavior, which, you know, they'll offer their advice or opinions, but but a lot of times they're not, you know, they're, and they would be the first to say, look, I'm not trained in behavior. But, but I would say most of the mistakes I made, I mean, that dog got, you know, critically injured. And I would, I would say traumatized, right? Because it, I mean, that attack just came from out of nowhere. Um, I was able to place that dog in a, in, in a family and, you know, it all seemed to go okay, but 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 yeah most the mistake I mean and then lots of lots of little mistakes you know just giving dogs too much um you know fearful dogs allow you know not really understanding how to deal with with a fearful dog I did a lot of flooding which you know your audience I mean I I think you covered that in one of your previous I think with the Carolina Aleppo um, episode but you know because you think like okay let's face our you know I grew up okay we got to face our fears <laughs> just okay just dive right in there and like oops you know looking back again so many cringeworthy things um that that mistakes that that I made so when I got into it professionally I already knew I mean, I already had experience and I, and I had, you know, I knew I needed to give a framework to people, you know, which is when I created the whole smart 
framework. Like here's, here are things that you, the categories of things that you need to, to pay attention to that are not intuitive, you know, to, to people who, right. who adopt a dog and, and just bring a dog home. You know, it's not intuitive stuff, but yeah. Oh, from the yeah, I can I can uh, attest to the fact that when we adopted our first dog, you know, 20 years ago, like, definitely not intuitive. And like, wow, do I wish I had had this website, you know, as a resource and, and that somebody had told me about it, because I wouldn't have even known necessarily what, you know, to like Google to find it. <laughs> well, yeah. And dog, you know, people weren't studying that. I mean, the, the you know, now that pets are a, you know, over now $30 billion industry, you know, there's a lot more money to go around to studies and universities now are doing a lot more cognitive research. And, but, you know, when I was just taking dogs into my house, you know, it was just, uh, there, there weren't really even people like the, the, the knowledge certainly wasn't in the mainstream, you know, the vets, you know, the veterinarians weren't, you know, really on the uh, sort of on the path of learning, about that because they do medicine, you know, they don't do behavior. And so it's just come, we've learned more about how the dog's brains work in the past, I mean, like 15 years than we've, you know, than we've ever known. And so everybody starting out back in the day was, we're just winging it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You think, well, let me just find a good mentor and hope that, you know, nothing crazy happens. So I've shared this story on the podcast. We did an episode probably a year or so ago about how to break up a dog fight in your house. And this was what happened to me. It was a very similar situation. We had like an informal foster. It was like a thing where this dog just kind of was left on my doorstep because somebody knew we had pit bulls and, and we were trying to make it work. And we have kind of a small house like it's not a great setup for you know multiple dogs and also this was a long time you know 15 or more years ago now so I just I still didn't know what I didn't know and our first two dogs had integrated so well with each other that we're like okay we'll just throw another one in there and that did not work and despite my efforts to like feed them in different parts of the house thinking that that was good like one of them still went after the other one while they were eating. And I mean, I'm fortunate it wasn't a like critical injury, but like definitely I had, there was a trip to the emergency vet <laughs> involved. And then that was like, Oh, I have no idea what I'm doing, <laughs> you know, and really having to realize that. Yeah. Extremely, extremely humbling. And it was like right around the time I had like met all these dog people and been volunteering. And so I was like so horrified and so ashamed and embarrassed. And I still, I want to share that story just because I feel like so many people I know have a story like that. And, you know, I always want to be like, we have to put these things out there because it happens. And, you know, it, it, it's a hard learning experience, but this is what happens when you aren't setting a dog up for success. Oh, yeah. And, and it's, it helps to be relatable. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm always thinking about it from the client's perspective. It, it, they, they need to, you know, I always joke that if you come to my house, you're not going to walk in and go, well, clearly a dog trainer lives here. Because <laughs> all these dogs, I mean, I ended up with my dogs, you know, like I didn't go out and want, you know, and seek any of them. They right. ended up with me. And they, you know, I always joke like, well, they're, they're not biting anyone. They're not biting each other. They mostly come when I call them. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's all you ask for, really. <laughs> so one of the things I love about your whole framework is one of the first things you start with, and 
coming from that rescue shelter background, it's so important about losing the baggage. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. So one thing, you know, we, we, as humans, I think we're hardwired to try to figure out why something's happening, like some behaviors happening and, 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 you know, you, we want to figure out why. So the, a dog, and it's so common, I'll just use the, this dog is afraid of men example. And so naturally we say, oh, you know, this dog must've been abused by men. And then once we take that on as part of their story, then we start to, uh, go forward as if the dog has been abused by men, which, and I use that example because there are biological reasons that a lot of times dogs seem fearful of men, right? Men, um, and there's some, a great, a great study that, um, and I can't recall who did it right now, but some really, a great study where they, well, it turns out men and women are different. (laughs) (laughs) We behave differently. Um, vocal tones are lower in men, right? And in the in the mammalian world, in dogs, you know, a low vocal tone can signify aggression. So that's one reason that sometimes dogs might be kind of off put by men. Um, socialization is really important because men and women are different. If a if a dog isn't if a puppy is not exposed to men in the by the by the twelve weeks of age you know, is the window, the human socialization window, then after that, you know, that's when that brain is super, you know, plastic, and it's taken everything in, and it's very optimistic, like, you know, oh, hey, this is cool. You know, after that window, then we're sort of now working against nature, we're having to teach a dog, which is using a different part of their brain to that men are safe. And so when we, when, 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 when dogs come into rescue and we start giving all these backstories, I think as humans, it drives sometimes how we approach the dog. And I, I just, I, I just tell people, and it it makes our heart hurt. So, so then we're doing this, you know, that kind of, and there's totally a place for that. You know, there's, I mean, of course we want to love the dog. We want to cuddle the dog. We want, and all those things are totally fine. But I think that, that it it drives then us to maybe do things that, that aren't helpful for the dog, you know, like, you know what I mean? So rather than maybe trying to get used to men, you know, or maybe try to help desensitize and counter condition dogs with, with, you know, men and, and not all men. We just, you know, the people maybe who live in your house. I mean, we don't, dogs don't have to like everybody in the world, you know, so rather, and then we start to kind of work around stuff rather than try to help the dog kind of learn new coping skills and learn new ways through it. And it takes up a lot of emotional energy. You know, and, and, and a lot of, sometimes people are real, they love that. They love the story. They just want to, you know, they really marinate in that story that like most of the time isn't even accurate. I mean, sometimes we know, you know, we get dogs from abusive situations. I mean, we're, we're able to kind of, yeah, you know, we understand some, sometimes, but so often we just, we don't know what trauma the dog might have experienced or what their exposure was. And, you know, like good luck having a puppy social, you know, in rescue at least, but 12 weeks of age. I mean, please, you know, we don't, we don't get them very often when they're puppies. And then there's that whole thing. Even puppies are not clean slates. 
you know, if, if you know, they can, they're, if they're, you know, traumatic, if, if mom was, was, was stressed out and prenatal, you know, that whole environment turns on different, you know, epigenetics, right. It can yeah. flick on certain things that can be passed down. And so I just, I don't know. I, I tell people just relieve yourself of the story. You know what I mean? And let's just look at the dog in front of us. And that doesn't mean like just plow forward and don't, but, but pay attention to the, to the, in the moment, kind of what the dog is telling us and just, you know, it's okay to let it all go. You know, the dog carries with us, you know, people used to say like, well, dogs, you know, they, they let it all go. They live in the moment. Well, we actually know that you no, know, they remember lots of things and they can have trauma and they can, you know, but we don't, I don't think we serve them by, by sticking to that. Yes. You know what I mean? By hanging on to that story. So that's what I mean when I just say, okay, lose the baggage. Let's everybody just, whoop, you know, drop it and move forward. You know, that question sort of came up recently because I had done the episode with Carolina Lupo about trauma and dogs. And I got the question of like, oh, well, I thought dogs just lived in the moment. And I was I was kind of, you know, thinking you probably said it much more eloquently than I would, but just that the dog necessarily might not be living in the moment, but we need to live in the moment with that dog. We can't get attached to that backstory and we can't carry that along with the dog. We have to, yeah, take the dog in front of us. And, you know, what I, what I really wanted to uh, talk about is, you know, getting a dog is stressful. And I seem to have forgotten that myself personally. And, you know, my husband and I were talking about how on social media, uh, you see like the freedom ride picture, right? Where it's like, here's this dog in the shelter and they look all like sad and lonely. And then it's like, and now an hour later he got adopted and he has the freedom ride. And, and we were like, we have never gotten that moment. (laughs) We have also never gotten that the other end of the spectrum where the great last day where you, you know, where, you know, the dog's end time is coming and you're taking them on the wagon around the neighborhood with the cheeseburger. Like we've never gotten one of those moments either. (laughs) So uh, if anybody else is also in that boat, you're not alone. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, for sure. I love those freedom. I mean, all that is, it's all good feeling and everything, but like all things on social media, you know, you can feel, I don't, I always encourage people, but it's not the norm. I mean, for it, woo, like after the freedom ride, you know, and I, I, I talk about this in my rescue smart article, like we don't end up talking a lot about, um, what's going on once you get the dog home. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's, and, and people, and I get it, right? We don't want we don't want it. We want it to work out, and so it's a lot of times people are, or people are embarrassed to talk about it, or you know they don't know people. You know they don't uh, like say the rescue people or whatever aren't in the situation that I'm in, where I'm actually I'm in the living rooms of people who have adopted the dog, and so they maybe you know people in animal rescue might not always have that um, that access to outcomes you know, where they're in the living rooms, where they're seeing like, oh, that dog that everybody thought was just, oh, cool, it'd be great with a family. And then it turns out, oh, it's got really bad visitor danger. And like, it's a, pro- you know, it's a project. So, 
So are you the originator of the 333 rule, by the way? Because I see this shared on social media a lot. And I'm always I'm always like so excited when I see it. So did you invent that or did you just popularize that? Or? I well, I think I was the first person to package it. So so and there's nothing in the literature, I need to say, there's nothing in the scientific literature to support the 333 claim. Right. But we all know, you know, anecdotally, that counts, too. But what that we had observed and, you know, it may have been I know that it's been out there amongst animal rescue people. And I'm thinking back, you know, of where, how, I wouldn't even be able to tell you where I first heard it. I think I was the first, though, to package it and to say, okay, here's some, this is a thing. And to bring it to maybe the general, you know, to uh, certainly my clients, but to the rescues that I work with and the shelters that I work with. So I think I was, was the first to kind of package it up and, and have it be kind of a very easy three days, three weeks, three months do's and don'ts, that kind of thing. But no, I don't, I, I, I know I did not like come up with it on my own. So I saw it somewhere and then, <laughs> you know, packaged it and launched it. And I don't mind. I've seen a lot of people take that like, you know, stuff that I've used for verbatim and then, you know, use it for themselves. And I don't care. I'm, you know, people <laughs> always say, Oh God, you should be monetizing this. You should have like trademarked that. Or you should have been like, you know what? I, uh, uh-uh. that, that turns this whole thing into like, not my passion job. Then that becomes like, ugh, like a real job. <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> well, you know, every, I don't know, every couple of months, it seems like it'll like kind of go viral amongst the dog pages that I follow anyway. And like, I get excited every time I see it because I think it's such good information. So do you want to tell yeah. us what the three, three, three rule is? Yeah. So three, three, three is three days, three weeks and three months. And those are really common timeframes where, where we see dogs, maybe behavior changes or like, like, so for example, the first three days, I kind of call the decompression period. So when you get a dog home, you know, a new environment for a dog, even the happy go lucky, like, you know, and I'm just going to use Labradors or golden retrievers as my stereotypical example, just because most people can relate to that. Even though I work with a few of those rescues and, you know, that why certainly um, it's, they're not, not every golden retriever is happy go lucky. Um, (laughs) But but even a, like, so a new environment for, and I would argue, and people, people can put themselves in these positions too. That's the other thing I love about that, do, that dog science, that the science of, of, of dog cognition is becoming a lot more mainstream because we are allowed, you know, we're both mammals, right? So there are similarities in our brain and our emotional systems. We're allowed to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the dog, you know, um, you know, an ethologist is going to say, okay, well, don't anthropomorphize, you know, don't put human behaviors on a dog. I totally get that. But there are things to help people kind of relate. Um, And so the first three days, when a dog is in a new environment, even the most happy-go-lucky dog, a new environment is at the top of the list of stress triggers. And so again, people can imagine this, right? You go to a different country, say. And so you're, you're, that first three days, We've, we see um, uh, an elevated cortisol level, um, elevated adrenaline, 
um, even again for a happy dog, right? And so you, you you really need that 72 hours for the dog's brain chemistry to kind of settle down. Because um, after just one stressful event, dogs, uh, cortisol and adrenaline can remain high in the bloodstream for up to 72 hours after just one stressful event, right? So you think new home, new people, I mean, that's many stressors that so that first three days is all about decompressing. And I tell people that's where you want to set up a pen, you know, somewhere in your home that um, and depending on how the dog's behaving, you know, where it can kind of feel safe and observe and just rest because they, you know, coming out of shelter environments, I work with a lot of foster based rescues. And so that's kind of nice because the dog's coming you know, from a home environment going to another home environment, but still all the new people and the new routines and everything new. So the first three days is really about just letting the dog decompress um, and allowing some of those chemicals, those stress chemicals to kind of uh, relax. That's why we don't see dogs, you know, a lot of times people get concerned dogs aren't eating, you know, like in that first, you know, few days, the dog doesn't want to eat. Everybody's, oh no, you know, everyone worries. And, and that's, you know, those are, we, we don't want to eat when we're super stressed. Well, some people do eat when they're really stressed, but I mean, dogs are not, they don't, when they're in fight or flight, they're not also eating, you know what I mean? They're not eating. The, the brain is shutting all that down. So um, that's what the first three days are for. And, you know, and that's when we're not, and we're not overwhelming the dog with new things. And then the, 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 the next, the, the next three are three weeks. And that's where a dog is like settling in. Well, we're really building trust. Um, and that is something that I think I brought to the three, three, three thing that I hadn't seen before is this notion of trust and that animals or that dogs, you know, they, they're, from the second that they're in a new environment, they're they're making decisions about their safety. So their little threat assessment meter, you know, is is constantly going. And unlike humans, you know, we have this lovely big chunky part of our brain where we can rationalize, where we can say, oh, you know, well, nothing, you know, that that guy, he hasn't done anything crazy to me yet. So I'm sure he's fine. Or, you know, we humans are more generalizers, like, well, these all these people seem really nice. I'm sure it's all good. You know, dogs aren't really like that. And I think that's where the dogs live in the moment thing comes from. You know, they're not good generalizers. And so that first three weeks, they're, they're deciding, kind of, they're building trust is really the, the best way that I can say it. They're deciding, you know, what's safe? Are you safe? you know, is this environment safe? What do I have to keep my eye on? You know, that kind of thing. And they're kind of just getting to know. So we, so then we can, you know, give them a little bit more freedom because we want to watch them during that time. We want to say, oh, okay, that made that dog, you know, made the dog nervous. So I, you know, note to self, I need to kind of figure out like what's going on there, you know? Um, And so we're, we're doing a ton of observing. I tell adopters like you put on your, Jane Goodall, you're out there, you're just going to observe the behaviors of this dog. And so that you can kind of start getting a sense of what of kind of what is is could be triggers for them. And that's really important too during this three week period that we're not doing anything that the to the dog that they find aversive. 
meaning I wouldn't be saying, all right, let's, you know, head out, out to the obedience class and we're going to, you know, jump right in here with, you know, because we just don't, the dog doesn't know us well enough yet to know like, hey, you got my back, right? Like, this is all good. And we don't know the dog well enough yet. And then three months, um, that's the settling in period. That's where we, by the end of the third month that, you know, we typically are now seeing what we brought home from the, you know, shelter or rescue. It's also a period where one particular behavior problem kind of rears its head that I see a lot in that third month that wasn't present before, and that's resource guarding. The either defending of resources or proactively or aggressively trying to obtain resources. You know, in the easiest example, dog's eating and you go to touch it and it, you know, you know, and it's guarding its food. Possession guarding, possession aggression, those are other names for it. I mean, everybody can, you know, relate to that. But, but by the, it's, it's usually month three where I'll get a call like, oh, hey, it was all good. And then, then it wasn't right. Then the dog, you know, it's shown. And so that can be a new behavior, you know, kind of popping up because the conditions, you know, allowed it or the dog needed to do that behavior for some reason it thought, or a lot of times I believe um, it's old behavior kind of resurfacing that the new environment had suppressed. So, you know, three months, like you said, bringing home a dog is really, a new dog is really stressful. So people think like, gosh, you know, three months, it seems like forever. You know, when you have, when you have a new dog and you're trying to figure it all out. And, um, you know, that's one area that I say, don't back off on, you know, managing those resources and keep an eye because that is, you know, that's why I like to go to that third month before we're making any big proclamations about a dog, you know, in terms of behavior problems or, you know, is this going to work out or things like that. And don't get me wrong. There are things that show up in the first three weeks that make me go, okay, this, this might not be a good fit, you know, and that's usually children are involved or, you know, um, the dog is behaving aggressively to visitors and the, you know, whatever. So, but, but yeah, so three days, three weeks, three months. And by the end of the third month, I tell people, okay, here, you know, I think we have a good sense now what we've got to kind of work on. And hopefully it's nothing. <laughs> hopefully. hopefully it's go to your, go to your petco and take a class or go get on with your life. You know what I mean? And so hopefully, you know, and a lot of times it does work out that way. So I just have to share this funny story with you that has happened since we have adopted this new dog Nessie into our house, because, you know, it's like one of those things where, you know, we put the, we have the baby gate up, we're doing this gate and rotate, crate and rotate kind of thing. Like I, I've felt really good that we've been really prepared and really diligent, you know, this time around. So it was raining like a couple weekends ago. I mean, just like where it rained just like the entire weekend and, and like all behind our shed was horribly muddy. A lot of the times I was taking her out in the yard on a leash, but it was early in the morning and it was still raining and I have my fuzzy slippers on and it's December and it's cold. And so I just kind of let her out. And of course she is running behind the shed where it's really muddy. And now she's completely covered in mud. And I'm like, Oh God, now I have to clean her off. So, you know, we have these towel, like our dog towel pile by the back door. And I go to get the towel to wipe her feet when she comes in. She was not familiar with that behavior, <laughs> the wiping of the feet with the towel. And now I have like completely traumatized her. And she's like terrified every time she sees the towel now. And she doesn't like her feet touched. And I'm like, oh, God, 
practiced trying so hard to do it all right. And now, you know, I've completely traumatized this dog over the towel. Oh. Well, don't beat yourself up because anybody would have done that. I mean, who, <laughs> you know what I mean? They, you know. But that was like a new thing that, right. you know, she wouldn't have necessarily experienced. Before. Yeah. And feet are real, feet are prickly, like dogs in their feet. Like, oh, yes. You know. Yes, that's that's definitely something um, we have experienced before. Usually with the nail trims, I've never had it with with this um, with just wiping the feet before. Although Nino always tries to hurdle me, but you know he's at least like cooperative. And um, but now we have a system where like one of us will distract her with like a licky mat of peanut butter, and then we if we just use like a warm washcloth, we can usually do it real quick, you know. But it's it's, it's got to be a tag team effort now <laughs> instead of just me by myself. <laughs> That's a good solution. I love I love the whole licky mat. You know, I, when those came out, I was like, what a cool idea. Again, something I wish I would have invented. But like, you know, that is such a great like here, lick this peanut butter while I'm doing this, you know, potentially aversive kind of invasive, you know, husbandry on you. you know what I mean? yeah. it's- Wait, I've, I've already cleaned mud off this rug enough. <laughs> So one other thing I was just curious, because it's just something that has popped up in our experience. We had what was basically my heart dog, Penny, who passed away very suddenly about a year ago. And we were, you know, it took us almost a year before we thought we were even ready to adopt a new dog. Now, obviously, you never I I always, you know, we know this is not going to be Penny, you know, but I guess sometimes it's just so interesting of like how different a dog can be from your previous dog, even if it's the same breed, even if it was like the same age when you got it, even if it's, you know, so many other things seem the same, you know, and you, you kind of have this certain set of expectations in your head, right? Like that you can wipe the dog's feet with a towel or, you know, that they'll like car rides or, you know, things like that. And I was just curious in your experiences, like, have you ever run into this where, you know, like there's like a grief or like, expectations set on a previous dog and then you know people adopt a new dog kind of expecting it to be the same way like is that ever a conversation that you have to have or that you experience a lot I mean well on the client side when I'm when they already have the dog and I'm at their house and it's you know they have the seven pictures of the beagles on the wall and then there's the eighth one on the ground and it's behaving like any of those other beagles for sure we we get you know we have to say um you know, we have to have that talk that, Ooh, wish it was like your other dog, but like, not, you know, and then, and I use science to kind of explain a lot of things to people, you know, and you, you, they, they go, Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, they're different. They're as different as people. So like, look at your own family. I mean, I I raised two kids. Couldn't be more different. (laughs) Same thing, you know, so people can kind of relate to that. But in the adoption before people have brought home dogs, that's when I end up having a lot of those conversations because people will come still grieving. I mean, they're obviously grieving and they are trying to fill that hole in their heart. And um, I will, well, I've actually said no um, to people before just be, you know, lovingly and as compassionate as I could be. But, but because I don't think that that's in the best interest of the dog, because they're, they're not over it yet. If you can't talk about the dog that you had, just in a regular kind of almost clinical type environment, where it's, you know, we're adoptions and without getting emotional, 
that's my little cue to like, okay, I'm going to, let me probe a little bit and find out what your experience is. And, um, oh, oh, and yeah. And you, and we have to have those conversations. And most of the time people are understanding about that. You know what I mean? Like they, they're like, you know, you're, you're probably right because I'll point right out. Like you couldn't get through the sentence without crying, which you know, I can totally relate to that. But if you're not ready, that dog is, 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 you know, we might not be able to be serving that particular dog the best that we can until you're really ready. And then people who do the breed thing, that's a real hard one because it's easy for us to just think like, "Ah," even people, you know, dogs from the same breeders, oh, you know, it's the same it's the same breed. Like, why is this not the same as, you know, the other dog? And, and there's a nostalgia component too. you know, a lot of people come and well, I had German shepherds, you know, when I was a kid in the seventies and it was so great. And then I'm like, Hey, look around at today's German shepherd, y'all, especially the ones in rescue, the (laughs) German shepherds, you know what I mean? Like different, you know, it's like a different thing. And so, but yeah, that's a hard conversation, but I find that people are very open too. And and then if they're not, they can they go down the street to the other shelter or whatever, and you know, they're gonna they're gonna get a dog re- regardless if they're not ready to hear what we have to say. But you know, can't control everything. Yeah, it's just been interesting some of the things that it, it's brought up. Where you know, here it's almost a year later, and you know, obviously you're always going to miss your dog. But like, you know, it was almost like having a new dog in the house, like kind of kick some of that up again. It was it's just been an interesting like observation that I've been having these last several weeks, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, you're self aware, you know, you, you're it's good that you're having that you're realizing like, oh, wait a minute. And I think it's good when it kicks up, like, certainly, it's going to kick up emotional feelings, you know, but clearly, you guys are at a place where you're well, and all this work that you do and the knowledge that you have where you're ready to have another dog, you know what I mean? And so, and you're able to say, okay, this is a different dog then. And, and then you're going to see all the things in that dog that are fantastic. You know, that, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> I just love this whole idea of like, how do we set our dogs up for success? And I actually added the Rescue Smart website to the website uh, to link to from the nonprofit website because we talk about that a lot in what we do with in our volunteer work. So, and I I love an acronym. I always love a good acronym. (laughs) So can you tell us about the SMART process? Yeah. So SMART just means structure, management, activity, red flags, and training. And I created it to be an easy framework. Um, So all of my, like I have, you know, foster SMART, puppy SMART, dog SMART, um, rescue SMART, you know, so anytime I'm working with a particular audience, I can always put everything into the SMART protocol and, you know, uh, structure being the very first thing. And it kind of... They, they sort of go in order of importance. A lot of times we're working on things in parallel, but like, you know, structure is, is the very basic, the foundation. Um, and I enjoyed hearing Kay Stewart talk about nutrition and how, you know, that, well, a lot of the things we're learning in human health, like gut health, for example, right. we're really able to kind of extrapolate somewhat to dogs. And so structure is about the dog feeling safe the dog developing trust, 
um, getting appropriate veterinary care if they need it, um, good, you know, nutrition, you know, a lot of dogs in rescue, they're, they're malnourished. And, you know, I'm always real like, okay, we cannot judge a dog's behavior until we get their, 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 their health to a certain place. Cause nobody behaves like they normally behave when they're not feeling well. And so it's, you know, get and sleep. That's a whole, another one, you know, I deal with fear and anxiety mostly. And so anxious dogs, hypervigilant dogs, you know, they're not getting the restorative sleep that they need. So addressing the, that kind of core foundation of health. Um, and then once you've sort of set up like, okay, this is, you know, the sort of environment that I'm, I'm setting up for the dog, you know, then we can, the management component of smart is, okay, then how do we manage the dog through that? Right. So if the dog has particular triggers, you know, fear triggers, maybe we're really trying to, you know, manage those. So the dog isn't rehearsing some fearful response, you know, all day long dogs, especially fearful ones. And, and I will say most of the work that or most of the stuff I've developed for rescue smart is kind of written for the dogs that need help. I mean, there are a lot of dogs that people go, all right, by the end of the fourth day, this dog was like, Hey, cool. Fit right in. Like they weren't, they weren't experiencing that. And so that's great when it works. So, so a lot of the stuff that I do is really geared toward, you know, you you have a slightly shy animal or fearful animal and to not making that stuff worse. Cause remember they're forming opinions from the second that they walk into their new space, you know, or, and I always joke like, you know, three, three days, how about let's do three minutes, three hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause what, you know, you talk about cars, right? Well, how do dogs get home from, you know, so many dogs that, that I work with or that come into the rescues I work with may have never even been in a car. Right. So they're just starting their whole like freedom ride journey, like terrified. You know? That's my guy, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so predictability and consistency routines really help, um, you know, manage in, in the management component and that activity and I put a slash, you know, activity slash enrichment. So enrichment is like a hot, and I'll say new. I mean, it's been, you know, on the fort for a few years. Um, when you, I feel like the older that I get, the more I think like, oh, you know, it's been a couple of years and it's really been like 10. But um, <laughs> it's a buzzword right now. I will, I yeah, will agree. It's, it's a buzzword, buzzword right now. <laughs> yeah. And in, in, the, in my circles, you know, we, we've been talking about it at a more, um, I guess, I don't know, theoretical, you know, in the dog training circles a lot more for, for quite a few years now, but this idea of biologically appropriate activity and sort of, you know, trying to understand and breed can have to do, stuff to do with what does your dog, you know, like to do, but really it is what does your dog like to do? And then giving it the opportunity to do those activities. Um, and so, so that's the activity and enrichment portion. And I will say, one of the easiest things that that people can do in the enrichment category and that also helps make happy brain chemistry is allowing their dogs to forage for their food. And so whether that's, you know, a, a snuffle mat that you, you know, you buy or whether that's um, your backyard and you're tossing food on the, you know, the concrete, allowing the dog to forage and sniff and search for their food is a great enrichment activity, sniffing around, letting them smell everything. You know, that's an activity. Um, we don't have to do a 45 minute neighborhood walk to be an activity. And in fact, a lot of dogs aren't ready for that. You know, when you first bring them home, 
And, and so real, that's a huge area where I think we, there's a lot of low hanging fruit in your average pet owner's home where you can say, Hey, you know what? Like you don't got to get all like crazy DIY and build an entire, you know, enclosure of activities for your dog. But there are some really basic, simple enrichment things that make happy brain chemistry and, you know, kind of go and help burn energy. Cause that's a lot of dogs that we work with are adolescents, right? Because those are the ones that become annoying, they end up in the shelter and, you know, so they need to burn some energy and maybe you're not, you don't want to train up an athlete that you have to run five miles a day. I mean, so much is dependent on breed and, you know, things like that. But but the idea of giving a dog, you know, choice in, in activity and saying, you know, well, what does this dog like to do, right? I mean, some dogs want to chase stuff. Some dogs, so, you know, a lot of times in that first three months, you're just figuring out, oh, okay, well, my dog doesn't like to chase things, right? Okay, then, you know, what else can we be doing? So that that's a huge, a huge portion of the smart of where people can spend their time kind of trying to help their dog. And then R stands for red flags. And those are where we're kind of looking for things that really need you know, attention, behaviors that need attention. Dog starts, you know, barking at visitors or, um, you know, or they're, maybe they're having um, medical issues that are driving some behavior that we, you know, we have to kind of do some detective work on the medical side, you know, th- you know, looking for those, for those red flags that need attention right away. And then the T stands for training. And that's, you know, all the skills needed that to navigate in our human world. I mean, that, that kind of stuff. And so a lot of times the training part comes later in, in our, in a new relationship with a dog, you know, the, because we just don't, we, we might not know enough yet to really know what, what kind of training that they need. Um, I mean, and don't get me wrong from the beginning, we always tell people don't reinforce behavior that you don't like. So if you have a big dog and it jumps up on you and you're like so excited because it's like loving me and stuff, you have to remind yourself that, Ooh, but is that a behavior that I really want to reinforce long-term? Cause now if we do, and then we, then the dog trainer gets the call, Oh, my dog, you know, jumps on guests, you know, I mean, it, and it's not a hard fix. It does require work, but you know, so as far as training goes, a lot, of, a lot of times by the third month, people have realized, oops, I was reinforcing behaviors that I now need to either unwind or, or there's stuff that this dog doesn't do well, like walk on a leash. And we, you know, we need to work on that. And I always tell people there's always time for training. You know, a five-year-old dog can absolutely learn new behaviors. You know, it's not, you know, really, I care more about like the mental, the emotional wellness of the dog because that's the real hard stuff you know to fix you know and and that's where we you know fear is something that's very easy to instill in an animal and really really hard to to take away to fix you know so but yeah but that's the smart you know and and each whether it's I'm training fosters you know foster smart that has some different components but I find that 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 framework is really an easy way that people can say, okay, am I doing these, the, am I paying attention to all these categories? And the, the biggest one that I find that, that people struggle with is the activity and enrichment part, because in, maybe in their mind, they thought that, you know, that neighborhood walk, that's the activity. And, you know, and, and dogs, 
and I don't, I mean, you're lucky if you have like a dog that gets to herd your sheep or, you know, whatever. Most dogs, at least in my world, I live in the suburbs in Northern California, um, have very, very boring lives, very boring lives, you know, and, and that, and so, I mean, mine do too, you know, I mean, I have a pit bull, I've got, you know, I've got a terrier mix. I mean, they are busy dogs. And, and if they were just to sit around my house and go on one walk a day, I would, you know, that's not really what they need. Right. So we have to do all kinds of different, you know, pit bull likes to tug on things and the terrier likes to dig and, you know, so, but the activity portion is something that I really find people are, is the most, are the most light bulbs. I think I see when, when I meet with people, they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like we have to, do some activities. Um, and of course we try not to make it seem daunting because boy, you get on some of those. And I love that it's a buzzword and that you're like, you know, canine enrichment on the Facebook and go look at all those pages there. I mean, there are such creative people who do just most, you know, you don't have to spend a ton of money. Um, and you know, a, a lot of times it doesn't take much time. You can do it in parallel. You know, you're washing the dishes while your dog is, you know, hiding or finding food that you've hidden in the next room or, you know, whatever. So, yeah. And you don't have to make your own snuffle mats because I feel like DIY snuffle mats are a big thing. And I'm like, so not a DIY girl. I'm going to like order it off of Amazon kind of girl. You know, like, how did you make this? I'm like, oh, no, I didn't make this. That is not my jam. Yeah. No no shame to us, uh, Amazon (laughs) orders. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so small, that's, that's just, yeah, structure management, activity, red flags, and training. It's just an easy way that people can think and kind of overlay with, you know, their current situation. And of course, I'm going to have a link for everybody in the description and the show notes, because I want everybody to go and look at this and you lay everything out so well and you give links and there's PDF downloads and there's videos of like what a lot of these different things look like. It's such an amazing resource that you have that's all free that I, even I was like wow I can't believe she does this all for me <laughs> well I yeah well thank you Th- yes please spread the word spread the word the only the only thing I ever ask for attribution is if people want to you know s- shelters and rescues if they want to use my material I'm super happy to let them do that just go ahead and tag my you know my name at the bottom as, as you know, that I created it. Other than that, I mean, yes, spread it around because I, most dog trainers, at least where I live, we don't need more and behavior consultants, especially we do not need more clients. I mean, Oh, it's, <laughs> it's really like fear and anxiety has become epidemic in our dogs the same way that it seems to have become in our children and, and just human race in general you know, who knows why. And I'm sure it's many, many things, but, um, but yes, we, I love just spread it around because we don't, you know, we don't, we don't need new clients. <laughs> so what are some of the most common mistakes that you see people made thinking maybe like the lack of other, like mental enrichment might be one of them, but are there others that are very common in general in the smart framework? I think, well, management is uh, an area where I think a, a lot of mistakes are made in the beginning because people think, okay, this dog has been in a, in a you know, at the shelter or, you know, in a not ideal situation maybe. And so like you would have, when you have a human guest to your house, you would say, well, make yourself at home and you know, whatever, right. And give them exactly. And I think with, with dogs, especially if we're talking about dogs that might be shy um, or fearful, you know, the mistake of letting them just kind of, I won't say explore because one of the things I do tell people is 
allow the dog to sniff everything in the environment. That's their way of getting data. Uh, you know, and doesn't mean that you let them do that on their own because they will make mistakes. They don't know where to pee. They don't know how to let you know that they got to go out, you know, none of that. And so management on, on, on that part of it, um, I see a lot of mistakes. Trigger management is something that, Again, in my world, my perspective is skewed because people are only calling me when they have fear-based, you know, problems. Um, but managing those triggers. So, like, if you have a dog that, you know, in the beginning, it, it, you know, a new person would come in the house, you know, ding dong, and then somebody comes in the house, and if that dog, you know, might flee in the beginning or hide, right? And then the mistake is to keep exposing the dog to the scary thing because, in, in their mind, I mean it's scary, right? You know, um, and so to keep exposing them to that thinking that it, they're going to get better. Um, I think that's a huge mistake because those problems visitor, I mean, I would say 80% of my clients struggle with visitor, stranger danger, visitor danger, you know, people they don't know, especially coming into the home. They, that just gets worse on its own. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't get better. I wish it did. I wish dogs just kind of got used to it. But when you think of it from their perspective, every time someone comes over, uh Oh, you know, their fear response is triggered. And again, they don't have the ability to rationalize and say, Oh, that's just, you know, Doris from next door. She's fine. Do you know what I mean? And so managing a dog's triggers, um, I think is a big mistake that people make in the beginning. And, and, there, and a lot of times people don't know what they're looking at. So when I say mistake, I, I don't want it to seem punitive or whatever. I mean, you, they just don't know. You know, they don't know body language, right? They're not, they don't understand that, you know, oh, that ear set or, you know, the ears are kind of flat. Um, uh, touching a dog. That Well, and okay, I might have to say my number one thing that I tell people is, I know we want to touch dogs like that's, you know, that oxytocin loop that happens between a dog and a human. I mean, that's a real thing. And, and oxytocin, you know, that love hormone, they feel good. We feel good. That's a lovely loop. If the dog is also feeling good about it and dogs, many, many dogs tolerate being touched by people they don't know. A lot of times dogs don't, they will, actively try to get away, you know, they don't want to be touched. But what knowing what how a dog says to keep going and to keep touching is a really important thing. And uh, I have a colleague, she's fantastic. Um, you may want to check her out too as a guest. She's done some fantastic work in fear. Her name is Kelly Lee. And they did a, a video called the petting consent test. And it's a 13 minute thing. And I spread it all around everywhere because it's a great example of how dogs tell us they want to be touched. And more importantly, in my opinion, how they're saying, no, thanks. And it's super subtle. And so when you think about it from a human perspective, you know, we all have those people in our lives, you know, maybe you're a hugger and like, you know, you, you know, people like to hug or whatever. I'm, I'm not a hugger. I'm not a hugger on that first meeting. Right. Um, I mean, I'll do it because socially like the social contract, you know, you feel awkward, you know, Um, but, um, but I have formed an emotional opinion about that person. Right. So I'm like, okay, the hugger, you know, so but dogs, you know, dogs over time, if it's aversive enough, that can drive behavior that we really, really don't like. 
right? So not all dogs want to be touched, you know, figure out and the petting consent test is really easy. You pet them on the chest, like they could be sitting there, you can pet them on the chest. I always say chest because over the head is for most dogs, like kind of uh, invasive. Um, But you pet on the chest for three seconds, and then stop. And you don't have to move your hand away, but just stop and then see what the dog does. The real obvious thing is the dog will nudge you like keep going. Right. And this video shows examples of that. But the subtle ones, like you see dogs that just sit there, like they don't move. They make no, they make no movement. That's not a dog that's saying, yeah, go ahead and, really? you know, keep touching, you know? So I would say that touching the dogs is probably my number one, like try to stop doing that. And that's like a hard thing because when people get a new dog, they, you know, they, that's what, we, that's what we all want. You know, most of the time it turns out fine. They build trust and then the dog actually will then, you know, solicit physical touch. Um, But if we keep messing it up in the beginning, it just delays that whole trust building. And then the dog, you know, it's like ick. You know, the dog's like, oh my gosh, with the hugging again, you know, (laughs) and, you know, on a good day, they just tolerate it. On On a bad day, you know, they might, you know, growl or snarl or snap and that, whoops, now we've got a thing. Oh, these are such important things. One thing I also wanted to ask you about, you know, this is like one of those things where my dog trainer friend said something like, oh, are you dragging a leash around the house? And I'm like, my what? You know, I was not familiar with this term or, or this practice. And then I saw it in your um, handouts also. And I'm like, so this is a thing. And so this is basically just your dogs are out around the house and you just leave a leash on them. And I guess in my mind, I'm like, Oh, God, it's going to get stuck on the chairs and, you know, stuck on the corners. And <laughs> but what is the benefit of that? And when is that appropriate? Yeah. So for, you know, again, even with your happy go lucky dog, let's, let, let's give the dog, let's give the dog a chance to dis, to be able to show us if they need um, if the leash can be taken off again, coming at this from a fear and anxiety specialty or and rescue, the reason that we like to have the dogs drag a leash, um, and, and don't let me forget, because there are some dogs that I would say, we've got to work up to that, because maybe they've never even had gear on, mm-hmm. right? And so we don't want to compound stress by all of a sudden, the dog's like, what the heck is a collar, you know? But if they can tolerate that, then I, I we, and even the dogs, the super fearful dogs, Even if they don't seem to love it, we always want to do it because they're a flight risk. So I can't tell you how many times, you know, people will not have that way to step on the leash as the dog is bolting out the door or the dog Mm -hmm. is hiding under the bed and they're going to try to grab that dog and it doesn't go well right? You know, the dog can bite or whatever. Um, And, uh, you know, the whole time the dog is in a high fear response, you know, Um, but I, it it basically gives space from the dog to the person. It gives a handle so that if we need to say, Oh, Hey, we're not doing the couch. Like we're not going to have dogs on couches. You've got a way to very gently and without being super invasive with the collar grab. Right. You've got Mm -hmm. a way to say, let's go. And you can guide them off of the couch. Um, You've got a way to, especially with dogs that might be a little fearful or shy of people. You know, I love like a really light, you know, 10, 12 foot line that when you're in the yard, 
that you can, that dog gives that dog some space from you. So yes, dragging the leash is one of those. It's, it's a handle. It's a way to stop them from fleeing, you know, um, it's to guide them. Um, and then, and then if they're not used to gear, we can put, we can put, you know, start with a real light, something really light, um, that then they, and then you can work up to like a regular leash, but you're right. You have to, you know, you have to supervise, right? Cause the leashes get stuck. Like we usually, I usually cut the handles off of the ends of the drag lines that I use, um, or use a real slippery, like a, um, like a, a line, you know, almost a line that, can, that doesn't get stuck on everything. But yeah, dragging, it's, it's, it's just, it's a good safety. And, you know, I'm just so like, oh, it's skewed to, for the dogs that escape. And then now we have to get trappers out and we have to, you know, go through the whole looking for the chihuahua on the side of that mountain. And, you know, it's like very traumatic for everybody. Um, but yes, I do like, I do like dragging the leash. And then, and mostly for me, it's to, to, so you're not um, scaring the animal by having to quickly grab them. Because some dogs, you don't find out that they don't like that until you just found out they don't like that. You know what I mean? Right. Oops, now right. we you know, have a potential bite, you know, or whatever. My last question for you, because thank you so much for uh, all the time you spent here with us today. Um, when should people get a trainer involved for any of these red flags that they're seeing? So by week three, for example, if you've got a dog that is still – fleeing from family members, like, you know, in the example I'm always, I always use is, is if, you know, if someone simply walks into the room and this dog is on high alert, you know, barking, fleeing. So by week three, I really would have liked to see the dog get used to the people. Um, so I definitely, if they're still having, and this goes for fosters too, I do this in all my foster training. If by week three, that dog is not trusting or showing behaviors that are fear-based behaviors around humans, um, definitely get uh, a qualified person involved. And the answer isn't to tether the dog in the room as people are walking by. Um, and the reason I have to point that out, well, the reason I have to point it out is just because we don't want to trap a dog because tethering, crating, any of that, we've now trapped the dog, right? And so we don't want to trap a dog in a scare, a place that's scary for them. We're not doing right. anything to help it get used to, to that. So, I mean, that's, you know. I don't know. That, that's very controversial because a lot of in, in obedience training, and again, it's an unregulated industry, so anybody can do it. I see a lot. It's it's trendy, I think, to take dogs on outings and then have them hold stationary positions like a down stay in an environment where they're clearly like, uh, I'm not okay with this, you know, and, and, you know, that just erodes trust. I mean, we're not doing anybody any favors. Oh my gosh, you are just such a wealth of knowledge. I'm so grateful for all your time today. You. I want everybody to go check this out. I, I'm going to be spreading it far and wide now that I have this your website as a resource. And I might have to bring you back on again because I, I really want to do a puppy episode one day because I don't know anything about puppies. Yes, puppy puppies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm enjoying listening to your podcast and congratulations. It's really, it's, it's something for somebody not in you know, not a trainer, you don't have money to make on it or whatever to be spending your time doing it. So I really admire that. <laughs> Thank you so much.
I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I want to make sure that you definitely go and check the show notes on this episode. On the rescuesmart.net website, you can get all kinds of PDF downloads and video links to all the different steps of Anne's SMART framework. And I'll also have links to some of the other things that we talked about, like the petting consent test. This was really fascinating to watch, especially if you're somebody who wants to get really comfortable understanding what your dog is expressing to you through their body language. I'll also have a link to my favorite dog body language book, which is called Doggy Language by Lily Chin. I feel like this is a must have for every pet parent out there. I'll also have links to the licky mats and the snuffle mats if you want to learn more about that. And also, if you remember Tori Mystic, who was our guest a couple months ago, Tori does a lot of great stuff for pet parents on canine enrichment and learning some different fun activities that you can do with your dog. So I'll have a link to her website also. I just really love this focus that we are having on learning what our dogs like to do and really leaning into that for them. You know, I, I think in some cases we, at my house, we have been very good at doing this. And there's other times where I look back and I'm like, oh, we really probably could have done better. No judgment, but when you know better, you do better. I don't know how many of you are like animal welfare nerds like I am, but when Anne mentioned about her volunteering experience at the San Francisco SPCA, you know, my ears really perked up because during the 1990s, the San Francisco SPCA was a really important place in what is called the no-kill movement. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that term. I feel like in some ways it's become a very loaded um polarizing term these days. But if you look at what the heart of the movement was, is getting away from the old school dog pound mentality, where no effort was made to, you know, adopt or rehome animals, and moving towards a, hey, let's try to save as many animals as we can from this animal welfare system and get them into homes. You know, that's where San Francisco was a really important part of that movement in the 1990s with their leadership. So it was really interesting for me to hear her mention that, you know, she was was active there during that time. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. And just another reminder to join the Aaron the Dog Mom email list that you can find at the link in the show notes. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.